This morning I want to ask you for the fourth time to turn to the book of Ephesians and join me in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. We're going to finish this morning this first section of Paul's introduction that deals with the Father's activity concerning our salvation. Lord willing, next week in verses 7 and following, we'll begin to see what the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done to accomplish our salvation. In essence, what we've looked at here in these first six verses is the agreement between the Father and the Son in eternity past to accomplish the redemption. This agreement between Father and Son oftentimes is referred to as the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is a covenant between the Father and the Son of which we are the happy and humble recipients of their agreement, and especially Christ's work. So if you found your place in Ephesians chapter 1, let me read verses 3 through 6. And again, we're giving our attention this morning to verse 5 and 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his finished work. We thank you that you, our Father, and his chose us in eternity past and in time brought us to faith in him. As we give our attention to these two verses this morning, Lord, we pray for understanding. We pray that you would enlighten us. We pray and ask, Lord, that you would accomplish your purposes in us yet again. And we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. There are millions of professing Christians who will go to sleep tonight with no assurance of their salvation. Those who claim to be Christ's will fall asleep in uncertainty. The fault does not lie in God's revelation in Scripture. He's been very clear. He's told us in so many places that our salvation has everything to do with Jesus Christ. It's based upon his merits alone and not our own. The full and free atonement that is secured in and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his ensuing resurrection from the dead is clearly laid out in Scripture. The lack of assurance of many stems from not embracing by faith the truth contained in Paul's introduction to the Ephesians. This introduction tells us that our salvation beginning to end concerns the Lord Jesus Christ. Our responsibility upon hearing the gospel is to believe it, to turn from our sins unto God 
believing everything that Jesus has said of himself in the scriptures, everything that God has made known about him, that he is who he said he is, and he has done what he has said he has done in entirety. Concerning salvation, there is not one piece of work left to be done. It is all finished. Isn't that what Jesus said just before he gave up his spirit on the cross of Calvary? It is finished. Nothing remains. There is no need for any professing Christian who is claiming belief in the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. There is no need for any to doubt or to be confused whether or not they are truly and really saved. The belief that you can lose your salvation stems from, if you boil it down to its most base sense, it stems from the belief that you contributed something to your salvation. Amen. And if that be true, in any degree whatsoever, even to the smallest degree, if it is true that you contributed anything to your salvation, then absolutely you can lose it. Because you cannot keep it. But since it is true, not if, but since it is true, that salvation in the biblical sense is bound up in every way in Jesus Christ, then you can't lose it. Salvation is based upon the merits of Jesus Christ in what theologians distinguish as his active and passive obedience. The fact that he was perfectly righteous and sinless and then also actively setting his face like a flint, going to Jerusalem to bear the shame, the scoffing, the crucifixion, the scourging, to give up himself, to raise himself up again. Our salvation is bound up in the merits of Jesus Christ and in the merits of Jesus Christ only. And isn't it somewhat amazing that all of that is condensed right here into these first 14 verses of Ephesians? We don't have to go far. We could see it pieced together from Genesis to Revelation. In the Old Testament, we could see all the types and shadows of the Christ who is to come. We could look and study the Passover lamb and see how the shed blood of that lamb would atone for the sins of the people who, by faith in that blood, took it and put it upon their doorpost. And as the angel passed through, passing over them who had the blood of the lamb upon the posts of their home. We could see it there. We could see and hear the prophets in the Old Testament thunder out the message of God about the one who would come. Who would be a light not just for the Jew, but a light unto the Gentiles as well. We could read the Psalms of David and we could see how the nation should indeed be glad because there is one who is coming. Who will make them glad by faith in him. We read the Gospels and we are privileged And we should be so thankful and grateful to the Lord that he has given us not one, but four different accounts of Jesus's life, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven. We read the epistles and we have Paul and Peter and John unfold for us these truths of how our salvation is bound up in Jesus Christ alone. So when you go home tonight. Lay your head on your pillow. Go to sleep. Fully assured that your salvation 
is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ, you will not lose it. Nothing, no one can snatch you out of his hand. The work that he has begun, he will bring to completion. And isn't that the way Paul says it in Philippians 1.6? It does not say there, Paul does not say the work that Christ begun, your own, your own to finish. It says the work he began, he will bring to completion in you. All of that is compressed into these first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And this morning I want to give you my four points. You're going to notice one word ringing over and over and over and over four times. It's the word predestined. That's what the fifth verse, how it begins. Having predestined us to adoption. As Christians, as those who believe in Jesus Christ, I don't want us to shy away from the word predestined. There is no need to. So the four points are predestined in love, predestined to adoption, predestined according to grace, and predestined in order to praise. Four times over. We read this word twice here in Ephesians chapter 1 and then twice in Romans chapter 8. The word means to predetermine or to foreordain. And again, I'll remind you this is what God would have us to know through his apostle. What God would have us to know about what he has done for us. So let's look at the first point, to be predestined in love. Depending on which translation of the scriptures you have, which version, those last two words of chapter of verse 4 are shown to either apply to verse 4 itself or to be the first two words of the beginning thought of chapter 5. Excuse me, verse 5. If you have the King James or the New King James, which I'm reading, It will order it so that when you read verse 4, it ends with those two words. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The thought there, if we were to read it and to take it that way, is as we are ushered into the presence of God, being made blameless and holy, we are there in loving adoration of him who has done all of this for us. And there are many who take that those words apply to that thought of verse 4. And that's reflected in the King James, New King James. But if you read the New American Standard, if you read the English Standard Version, those are the only other two that I looked at, you'll notice that verse 5, even though it may still begin with the word having, the sentence structure in English begins with in love, having predestined us to adoption. Grammatically, either would be right. You can read long, lengthy discourses by theologians who can show that the two words in love belong to verse 4. And then you'll read just as many who can tell you that those two words belong at the beginning of the thought contained in verse 5. I tend to go to that direction. Tend to think that it is in love that we have been predestined 
to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. But in the end, it really doesn't matter. What you find between the thoughts of verse 4 and verse 5 is that the love of God is permeating both of these truths. There is no coldness nor rigidity of doctrine here. But there is love flowing from the heart of God. Whether we take it that we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Or, if we take it in love, he has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Then what's, what's at the center of both of those thoughts? The love of God expressed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you look here, verse, the verse that we've just read, skip down to verse 11, you see this word again. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The other place in the scripture, and yes, it's also in Paul's One of Paul's epistles is in Romans chapter 8. I'd have you turn there with me for this reason. I want us to parallel Romans 8, 28, and 29 with Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. So let me read Romans 8, 28, and 29. We read it last week, but since we believe in the analogy of Scripture... The analogy of Scripture being that the best commentary on the Scripture is the Scripture itself. The best written word that explains the written word is the word itself. So we're going to go back here to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to set Romans 8, 28 and 29 down right beside Ephesians 1, 4, 5 and 6. So verse 28 says... And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Before we go any further, we can stop there and just encourage ourselves, encourage our hearts, meditating upon this truth. For those who love God, nothing befalls them that does not work unto their good. The joy, the pain, it all works and tends towards the good of those who love him. To those who are called, the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So if we were able to put these two passages of scripture side by side, notice in verse 29, whom he foreknew corresponds to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1. Those who have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. What does it mean to be foreknown of God? Well, it means, according to Paul in Ephesians 1, to be chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And then both parallel accounts. What comes next is the word predestined. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us. What comes next? Well, here in Romans chapter 8, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, which parallels the without blame and holiness in Paul's writing in Ephesians 1. 
There we are, here in Romans 8, we're being conformed to the image of his son. In Romans chapter 1, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, we are being adopted as sons. And as such, we are taking on the characteristics, not only of our father, but our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way... Biological families work most often. The son takes on the characteristics, some mannerisms, maybe even some external features of the father. And then that carries on down. If there are multiple sons in the family, I see this in my own family. Sometimes I see Shiloh, Silas, or Stephen do something that looks just like something Seth did. And sometimes... I see Seth do or say something that looks like something I would do or say. And then to my, I won't say horror because it's not horror, but to my great surprise, I see myself do or say something that I see my dad doing. That just seems to be the way the biological family works. This is the language of these verses. We are being conformed to the image of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, in Romans chapter 8. But we are also called or adopted as sons of our father. And in both instances, we are taking on the characteristics of both the father and the son. So these two things parallel very nicely. Both of these concern the foreknowledge of God, the predestinating of God, the confirmation to the image of Christ, the adoption of sons. And I would encourage you at this point right here, if you have trouble with Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, Ephesians 1, don't just close your Bible. Open it. Pray over it. Meditate on these blessed doctrines. View these doctrines in the context of the whole of Scripture and plead with God to squeeze all the sweetness of these doctrines out into your heart like a big sponge so that you could just soak them up and bask in their glory. That is the context in which they are revealed. If you follow Romans 8 out to its, to its end, where does it end? It ends in praise and doxology to the Lord. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Skip down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul's doxology here at the end. I'm persuaded. That neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But isn't that also the context of Ephesians 1? These great doctrines are laid out. They're shown. And then where does that lead Paul there? And remember, it's not just where it leads Paul. Where does the Spirit of God in, in Paul Take him, well, to the same place, to doxology, to the praise of the glory of his grace. These doctrines are given to us in Scripture to initiate our praise to God. 
Not to make us withdraw from them and think, what kind of a God must this be? But rather we are to, rather we are to embrace them and glory in them and be so thankful to God. Three times over in these opening statements of Ephesians, Paul says, To God's great praise, to God's great praise, to God's great praise. And we confess he's right. Not that he needs our approval. But we confess the scriptures are right. And having presented these things to us in this way. So it is in love we have been predestined. God has foreknown us. He has foreordained that we would be united to Christ. And it all tends toward the praise of his glory. But notice the second point. We've not just been predestined in love. We have been predestined to adoption. This is something the New Testament speaks consistently on. This is something the New Testament speaks thoroughly on. What it means to be adopted into the family of God. And let's just understand the word adoption before we go any further. It's to be understood just the way that we use it in our current language. When a family adopts a child into their home, that child becomes their child. With every right and privilege of any biological children, if there are any, that child has every right and privilege In our society, sometimes they even have more. This is the same word that is used. Literally, the word means to be placed as a son. So if we read it that way, in love, having predestined us to be placed as sons by Jesus Christ. David Dickinson is an old writer. Probably if you recognize that name, it's going to be in relation to his commentary on Psalms. It's a tremendous commentary on Psalms. It's about Yathik. But he is writing here, commenting on this verse or this portion of this verse in Ephesians. He says, we are predestined not because we are foreseen as children, but not as yet being children. We should by grace attain the adoption of. Of sons. And that's exactly what Paul says. Having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. David Dixon then goes on to categorize what what he calls the benefits of adoption. The benefits of adoption begin in his mind, and I would agree, with an effectual call to faith. To embrace Christ by faith. But then there is this whole renovation of our nature. And I realize if you've ever studied the ordering of salvation in Scripture, some of these things are instantaneous. Some of these things are so closely related, they're hard to divide. At what point are we Renewed in grace. At what point are we converted? Or what point are we called? How would you order these things? Theologians order these things differently. But these are in effect the benefits of adoption. To be called effectually to faith in Christ. To have a renovation of our nature. To be regenerate. And to now have the dignity and honor of children. To have the dignity and honor 
of their children and to have an inheritance. I want to skip down just a bit and ask this question. It might be the question that's on some of your minds. You may have asked it before. Perhaps you've had trouble coming up with a suitable answer. Here's the question. Why did God go ahead with creation knowing it would be tainted by the fall? That's not just a question for theologians. That's a question for you. That's a question for me. Why did God proceed? Did he know creation would fall? Yes, he did. Why then did he choose to go forward with it? Knowing that everything he pronounced good in those opening chapters or those opening verses of Genesis, everything that he pronounced good would soon fall into sin. I love the way John Stott answers this question. I'm going to quote him verbatim. He says, could it be that God destined us for a higher dignity than even creation would bestow upon us? He intended to adopt us, to make us his own sons and daughters. Well, you might say, well, Adam had that. Not to the, not to the degree that we have it. How so? Was Adam perfect when he was made? Absolutely. But he was subject to change. And he changed, didn't he? That's how Adam is unlike Christ. There's a lot of correlation. Adam in his original creation was sinless. He was perfect. Christ, though he had no beginning, he had no end, was sinless and perfect. The stark difference between the two, Christ was immutable. He is immutable. He cannot change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Adam, on the other hand, was mutable. He was subject to change, and he changed greatly. He fell into sin, and he forfeited all of the rights and privileges as being the head of the creation of God. So why did God, knowing that creation would fall into sin, why is it that he went ahead with his creation? Could be exactly what John Stott says is that he predestined us for a higher dignity than even creation would bestow. What is that higher dignity? That we could be called the sons of God. Once adopted into his family, we cannot be lost. Once brought into the fold of the Father. Once he pronounces his name over us, once we are placed into the bosom of Jesus Christ by faith, having been baptized into Christ, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Now we have every right and privilege of being the sons and daughters of God, just as Christ and unlike Adam, we'll never lose them. Somebody should have said amen right there. That's the great difference. And it very well could be, as John Stott said, one of the reasons why God in mercy and grace proceeded with creation. If you go back to this idea of adoption and its literal meaning to be placed as a son, 
Adoption comes up in some of the greatest chapters in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's in the New Testament because adoption in this sense was unknown and foreign to a Jew. They didn't know it to the degree that Paul and John make it known. If you go back, or I'm going to turn back and read again from Romans 8, this time toward the middle of the chapter, not toward the end. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 12. And this concerns what the scripture says elsewhere as the adoption to sons. Romans 8:12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So here's another benefit of adoption to be led by the spirit of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It is only owing to our being adopted into God's family in that at his own good pleasure that we can bow our knee before him and address him in truth and in sincerity as our father in heaven. Because we have received the adoption as sons. We are no longer illegitimate children. We are no longer orphans in this world. But we are the adopted sons and daughters of God in heaven. But if you go on there in Romans chapter 8. Where he says we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out Abba Father. Verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. One of the greatest verses in all the Bible to deal with this issue of assurance. Am I or am I not in Christ? Is this verse we've just read. Though there are many more that speak to it. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. What does it mean to be adopted of God? Well, we just read it. There is now this inner compelling of the spirit of God for us to cry out to him as our father. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his child. And that we are heirs of God. And then what else did Paul say? Joint heirs with Christ. Adopted as sons. Adopted as daughters. If indeed we suffer with him. That we may also be glorified together. So not only in Ephesians 1 do we have this great doctrine of adoption. It's here in one of the, one of the tre- most tremendous chapters in all of your Bible. I've done this two or three times before. I'm going to do it again. One of the best books I have ever read. And I've read a few. This is on my top five. Octavius Winslow. Romans chapter 8. 
I can almost guarantee that if you get it and begin to read it, you'll have a hard time putting it down. Romans chapter 8, entitled, No Condemnation in Christ. His writing on this adoption here is so helpful, so edifying, so encouraging. But it's not only here in Ephesians 1, it's not just in Romans 8, it's also in another important chapter in our Bible, and that's Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 26 of chapter 3. Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In the first verse of chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all. But as under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And here's why we've turned here. That we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart. Same thing as Romans 8. Crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir with God through Christ Jesus. We could answer the question from Galatians 4, verse 7, the question being, what does it mean to be adopted into God's family? According to verse 7, it means that you are no longer a slave. A slave to what? According to Romans 6, a slave to your sin. Enslaved, now adopted. A couple of more verses, won't take the time to turn there, but just listen. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Speaking of Christ incarnate, he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him to them... Gave he power to, can you finish it? To become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So put these verses together with everything else that we've looked at. We have been given by Christ the power to become the sons of God. John said this, not me. That was not accomplished By the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but by the will of God. And then you fast forward, not to the Gospel of John, but to the first epistle of John. Third chapter, first verse. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. 
adopted into his family. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Is it any wonder why those adopted into the the family of the father might be persecuted, mocked, or scorned? We know very little of that. But there are brethren, brothers and sisters living in places who know a lot of that. And it's because they have been adopted into the family of God. The world hated Christ. It will, it will hate Christ's spiritual siblings as well. Back to these verses in 1 John. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know this. When he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him. As he is. So back to Ephesians 1. In love. Having predestined us. To adoption. As sons. By Jesus Christ. To himself. In love. Adopted into the family of God. So we've seen predestined in love, predestined to adoption. How about predestined according to grace? This is the part of the verse that corresponds to that according to the good pleasure of his will. You could read it. According to his grace. How appropriate is Psalm 115 verse 1. When we bring it and set it over these doctrines. That verse reads Psalm 115 verse 1. Not unto us O Lord. Not unto us but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy. Because of your truth. And isn't that what Paul says? If you flip the page to the second chapter, the 8th, ninth, and 10th verses, these may very well represent the best known verses in all the book of Ephesians. Verse 8, you know it. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then the reasoning is given in verse 9. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Lest we come to God and say, yes, I am adopted as your son and your daughter, but I had at least something to do with it. Something. You looked down and you saw in me something that made me worthy of being your adopted child. If that's what we say, we've just taken the free and unmerited grace of God and we've poured merit into it. And it is no longer free and unmerited. That thought ends by saying, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. There's the sovereignty of God again. God prepared these works beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created in Christ. We are fashioned, molded, made in Christ into the very workmanship 
of God. So we are predestined according to his grace. Curtis Vaughn, you know, he's one of my favorites. He says this is an act of his own pure goodness, of his own benevolent sovereignty. What he did, he did solely because it seemed right and good for him to do it. Thank the Lord. I love the words, benevolent sovereignty. So often people think of the sovereignty of God and they think of anything other than benevolence. They think of anything less than goodness. They think of harshness, coldness, unfairness. Not, that's not the way the scriptures reveal the sovereignty of God. It is benevolent sovereignty that is an expression of his pure, undiluted goodness, mercy, and grace. And then back to Ephesians 1. Not only are we predestined in love, predestined to adoption, predestined according to grace, the good pleasure of his will. The last part of this, verse 6, tells us that we have been predestined to praise. Verse 6 is the summary statement of verses 3, 4, and 5. And remember what... What great things we have looked at in verses 3, 4, and 5. We've covered it in just a few sermons, but you can go and read volumes, literally volumes of sermons on those few verses. Sometimes just individual words or phrases, having multiple, dozens even, sermons preached upon them. Verse 6 is the end or the culmination of this. And again, we're referring to primarily the Father in heaven. The first person of the Trinity. What is his responsibility or role in our salvation? Well, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, he has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And what does it all end? If this was a funnel and we were pouring all of those things into it, what comes out the bottom? To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the only fitting an appropriate response to these great truths of Scripture. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Is it any wonder why we sing the songs that we sing? Amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. Last week, or the week before we sang that, last week we sang... Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? I love the part of that that hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose in the dungeon filled with light. To the praise of the glory of His grace. And then the last part of this verse, by which, notice the activity of God again, 
by which he made us accepted in the beloved. We are not the beloved here being Jesus Christ. Moving right into the seventh verse in him, we have redemption through his blood. But by by which he made us accepted, you and I were not accepted in Jesus Christ based on anything at all. Except the sin that made it all necessary, right? He has made us accepted in the beloved. We don't sing this hymn very often. I'm sure that it's not familiar to most of you. It is in our folder. Lord willing, we'll sing it next week. But I want to read the verses of this hymn to you so that next week, if we have opportunity to sing it, the first six verses of Ephesians are filling your heart and your mind as you sing it. I had never sang this hymn until several years ago, the Fellowship Conference in Denton. We sang it there. It's an old hymn written in 1776. It's not new by any means. Hail, sovereign love. Listen to these words. And have Ephesians 1, 1 through 6 on your mind. Hail, sovereign love, which first began the scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail, sovereign, free, eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Against the God who rules the sky, I fought with hand uplifted high. I despise the mention of his grace, too proud to seek a hiding place. The second verse. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night, fond of darkness more than light, madly I ran the sinful race, secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsel ran, almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found that I had no hiding place. The third verse. Indignant justice stood in view. To Sinai's fiery mount I flew. What's, what's the hymn saying? I felt conviction, but I ran to the law. I ran to all the, the, the commands of God. Indignant justice stood in view. So to Sinai's fiery mount I flew. But justice cried with frowning face, This mountain is no hiding place. There is no covering here. Ere long a heavenly voice I heard, and mercy's angel soon appeared, and he led me on with gentle place, excuse me, with gentle pace to Jesus Christ, my hiding place. Here's the assurance expressed in the fourth verse. Should storms of sevenfold vengeance roll and shake this earth from pole to pole, No flaming bolt could daunt my face, for Jesus Christ is my hiding place. On him almighty vengeance fell, that must have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus became their hiding place. The last verse, 
A few more rolling suns at most. That's all any of us are ever going to see, right? Just a few more sunrises and sunsets. A few more of those cycles. A few more rolling suns at most shall land me safe on Canaan's coast. There I shall sing the song of grace to Jesus Christ, my hiding place. Exalt the Lord. His praise proclaim. Let every saint now raise his name. Forevermore we'll see his face. The face of Christ, our hiding place. How does Paul end these great thoughts in each section? Verses 1 through 6, the Father's part in our salvation to the praise of the glory of his grace. In the next few weeks, verses 7 through 11, how does Paul end the Son's work on our behalf to the praise of the glory of his grace? How does he end it in verses 13 and 14 when the Spirit comes along and makes application of all of these things? He ends it in the same way to the praise of the glory of his grace. And that's where we'll leave it today. Father, we're thankful for the work of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that he is indeed our hiding place. We are thankful to be found in him. Thankful for these verses that Paul wrote so long ago, but still the truth of the living God. Help us to embrace them by faith. Help us to see them not cold and rigid doctrines, but the flaming heart of the love of God expressed to us. Lord, help us next week as we turn our attention to the shedding of Christ's blood and the redemption that is to be found in him and he alone. Help us to divide the word accurately, to cut it straight unto the glory of God. We pray and ask it in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.